0: Everyone and welcome to the Learn to Lead podcast, brought to you by Ability, an experiential learning company based in beautiful Austin, Texas. I'm your host, Matthew Confer, and today on the show we have Michael Thatcher, who is the CEO of Charity Navigator, which is the largest independent evaluator of U.S.-based charities. Time Magazine called Charity Navigator one of America's 50 coolest websites, and they were selected by Reader's Digest as one of the 100 best things about America. Thanks so much for joining us today, Michael. Really happy to be here, Matthew. I'm going to kick us off by asking how you got started in the world of charity, the world of nonprofits. Can you give us a
1: peek into your origin story? Sure. My beginnings were in art, music, and dance. I started out as a music student and a composer. I fell in love with a dancer. We started a dance company together. And all of a sudden, in my 20s, I'm running my first nonprofit and trying to make a go at it. And we did well, we lasted for 10 years, never made any money, but we toured all over the world with that organization. And I think one of my greatest frustrations as the administrative director of that organization was I was spending all my time trying to raise money and I wasn't writing music and I wasn't dancing. And so I actually that, that created one of my first pivots, which was more into the tech space. You mentioned the word pivot, and I think
0: that's something that has come up frequently on the show. There's a lot of risks associated with making a pivot. How did you evaluate the pivots that you've made in your life?
1: When I was running the dance company, one of the skills that I'd acquired growing up was writing software. And my best friend at the time, and still my best friend today, was also a musician. He went a little bit longer and has made a whole career out of being a musician. But we both learned how to code and we both learned how to write D-Base applications to help small businesses in New York City manage inventory or do shipping and things like that. And so it's a way of subsidizing our artwork. And so that because the art wasn't paying, writing software was. And so you could make better money doing that than waiting tables. And I had a better aptitude for that. When I made the pivot away from being in the dance company, it was more deciding to follow the software development work and the technical work that I was doing more completely. And Mm -hmm. so it was it was actually a fairly easy transition. Other transitions I've had later on, like coming to Charity Navigator was a much more radical shift and a much harder transition for me.
0: It's a perfect kind of segue to talk about Charity Navigator. I was definitely intrigued when I started to look into the organization. Can you talk a little bit about the work that you all do?
1: Sure. Charity Navigator, as you gave us a wonderful introduction, but we're the nation's largest independent evaluator of nonprofits. We're a free service that you access through our website, just charitynavigator.org. We rate about 200,000 nonprofits on an annual basis. We also facilitate the giving. We have a giving basket that lets you make the donation. We create curated lists. If you wanna do something about Ukraine refugees, we'll help you find an organization doing that. Or if you're just doing your your annual philanthropy, we'll help you find good organizations addressing the causes you care about. Charity Navigator was founded 20 years ago by Pat Dugan and his wife, Marian. They'd come into significant wealth. They started giving back and they realized there was no way to actually differentiate between what at the time was several hundred thousand organizations. We now have over 1.6 million charities in the United States. So being able to find what you're looking for and then even know who's doing a better job, it was really hard. And so we were set up as a way of, in my mind, I'd like to say we're, we're democratizing philanthropy. We're making good information available to everyone. And, you know, just to put it in context, we have about 11 million people coming to our site every year to aid them in their giving decisions. And we do this all for free. We don't charge the charities. We don't charge the donors.
0: One of my favorite questions to ask, because we've had a lot of CEOs and other leaders on the show. What's the hardest part of your job? Or I guess asked another way, is there something that keeps you up at night? What do you worry about as a leader of this organization?
1: So when I first joined Charity Navigator a little over 7 years ago, we were evaluating about 8000 charities. And in a, you know, like a coffee chat or you know at a at a dinner, people would say, "Oh, I only give to Charity Navigator rated charities." Hmm. And I realized we were rating 8000 Yet the available universe was 1.6 million. That kept me awake at night. And so we've worked on it. We've actually, over the last couple of years, we've gone from 8,000 to 200,000. So big shift, big growth. So I feel I sleep a little bit better right now. That's (laughs) definitely been one of the areas of sort of growing the number we rate and then also making what we rate better and giving better information on the actual impact of organizations. These These are some of the hardest challenges that we have.
0: Before we hit record and we were getting to know each other a little bit, you talked about this difference between thought leadership and organizational leadership. And I thought it was an interesting way to kind of frame things. How have you seen that dichotomy or that difference manifest itself in your own path as a leader or in others that you've observed?
1: Well, like, you know, in, in the context of Charity Navigator, I think it's, um, I have a lot of general skills and abilities, but I don't necessarily know anything about the inner workings of, education, healthcare, animal charities. And so we have to rely on the expertise of people that are really, that have depth of knowledge in these areas. Mm. On the other hand, I have to manage a very disparate group of people so that we can actually make progress on this. Earlier in my career, I spent 15 years working at Microsoft. And many of those years was when Bill Gates was still in the organization. What was interesting to watch was someone like Bill, who was absolutely brilliant. He also surrounded himself with brilliant people, but then he also had good people managers. So that because Bill's skills were more in the sort of the thought leadership and moving forward in certain areas and then figuring out business models, but the actual, the human element of it that was often provided by other people. And so I think there's um, trying to be both or trying to be everything. It's not the best idea, at least not in my book. Well,
0: I've definitely, I've talked to a lot of people with interesting backgrounds. I think you have one of the most variety of background experiences of anybody that I've talked to. Do you have advice for younger leaders, for individuals earlier in their career about things that you think really benefited you in your path?
1: The one thing I would say is you have to love what you're doing because, you know, a lot of what you end up doing has drudgery associated with it. So you've got to really love it. And doing what you're told to do or is expected of you can often get you into a world of problems. If you don't actually resonate with the direction in your life, you could be really frustrated 10 years down the line or 20 years down the line. And so I would say you've really got to follow your heart in the things that you choose to spend time on. Other things will follow. But if you're not emotionally engaged with what you do, it can be really tricky.
0: One of the lines from your LinkedIn profile when I was getting prepared for this talk that really resonated with me, it said, quote, I believe that if you follow your heart, use your head and take action, you will make a positive difference in the world. I'd love for you to expand on all of that, but specifically the use your head part. What does decision making look like for you and and how do you think about using your head when presented with a difficult decision?
1: So. Part of the challenge, I think, is, you know, I fall in love a lot or I get really annoyed by something going on in the world. And I think actually this is a good recipe for for good philanthropy, right? If you think about there are things that happen in the world that really affect us, either in a good way or in a really bad way. Let's say we have a close family member who dies from a certain disease and, and we want to do something to eliminate that disease. That's the emotional hook. Then you sit sort around of and say, well, where, what can I do about this? And that's, it's that process of inquiry. So I'll, I'll tell you, um, one of the most important career transitions I made when I was at Microsoft was going from being part of the intellectual property and licensing group, so part of the legal organization, to becoming a CTO for them over in the Middle East and Africa. Hmm. And I was based in Istanbul, Turkey for five years. And the motivation for that move was actually had nothing to do with Microsoft. It had nothing to do with my career. It had to do with the fact that in 2004, the United States was at war with Iraq, and there was a candlelight vigil in Seattle. And I remember seeing the vigil, and I said, this isn't going to stop the war. Hmm. And about a week later, a friend of mine said, hey, they're looking for someone to go build relationships in the Middle East, and no one wants the job. You're a peacenik. Why don't you go take this job? Hmm. And it was, that was a trigger for me. It was like, hey, hold on a second. If we're actually building business relationships, I can show a different perspective on the United States. I can build relationships instead of actually being at war. And so from that point, that job, that CTO position was way out of my level. And, you know, it wasn't the job I was eligible to apply for took me six months, but I got that job. So talk about use your head. I had to show how I was totally qualified. I was going to help the organization. And this that's pure business, right? I had to be incredibly compelling. And guess what? It was good for Microsoft and it was good for me that I got over there. I spent five years there. We built amazing relationships within the region. Did it stop what was going on in Iraq? No, but I'm telling you what motivated me to get there was actually sort of this emotional reaction to something that was happening at the time and then figuring out I got to go do something about this.
0: You said a couple of things there and I want to hit on one of them. You said that you didn't necessarily feel like you were totally prepared for it. Once you actually ended up getting it, what did you do to prepare? What was the period before you got on that flight to Turkey? How did you feel on the flight to Turkey? Like what did that look like for you once you actually had put in place the pitch that actually got you the job?
1: You know, it was I read everything I could. I studied. I spent just hours learning everything I could about the region, about what we were trying to do. So it was really being a technology evangelist and helping governments understand what we did. I also realized I knew a lot more than I did. So that was one one thing. And then I got excited and I got curious. And I think that was it's being curious. So when you're when you're in something new, going and pretending you know, not a good move. Hmm. But going in and asking questions and becoming interested in someone else's problems that's highly effective because as soon as you can connect on some form of a human level people are going to give you first of all they'll give you a break and then also they'll let you learn the other thing i'd say is this is sort of it's ask questions don't try and project or say too much as if you knew if you don't so it's a little bit of um you know Better to say less and listen more than the other way around, particularly as you're learning.
0: After such a transformational experience, how did you decide what you wanted to do next?
1: Well, it was, you know, I spent five years in the Middle East and then I had always wanted to live and work in Asia. Hmm. And so my wife and I at the time, it was sort of said, hey, you know, it was we got to that point where it was time for something new. And there was an opportunity, literally the same role, but covering greater Asia based in Singapore that opened up. And so we leapt at it and um, ended up spending five years living in Singapore, working, you know, working and leading the same team. Here's an interesting part of sort of the emotionality of it. My original plan was to go to Asia and then exit and try and do something else. And as I was literally similar to, I was in Dubai, getting on the plane to Singapore and the man I'd been working for, who I really cared for and and had built this community of technology officers, had a, a, a bit of a difficult departure mm. from the organization. And he let me know this. And he basically told me and my counterpart for Europe, Middle East and Africa, you can't let the community die. Mm. Got to build the community. So both, you know, my friend Stephen and I, we basically said, OK, we're going to make this work. And we spent the next five years really rebuilding that and growing that community while we were doing the work that we were doing.
0: One of my um, my favorite questions to ask is, is, what are you curious about right now? And curiosity came up in your last answer. And I would say if I had to pick a theme that has come up the most on this show with our guests, it has been some variation of be curious or it was curiosity that led me to where I am. What are you the most curious about right now? It can be something to do with your current role or, or something outside of work.
1: I guess I'm most curious about sort of how do we actually how do we make a difference in the world? Right. So I'm I do everything around guiding giving towards more effective philanthropy, but it's sort of seeing that difference and, and maybe seeing some, you know, how do we eliminate some of the problems? And I actually don't know that we're getting there. I just see more problems coming on. So there's a there's this kind of curiosity and then the, and an optimism of like, I think we can do this. Hmm. I sure I sure don't know how we're going to do it, right? And so that's where I'm the most curious right now.
0: Well, as a, as a final question before we move to the rapid fire questions that I ask all of our guests, what do we on the outside not understand about the world of charities and nonprofits? For those of us that maybe our only interaction is just making a donation once a year, you're in the mix with leaders of Charities all around the, the country and your organization is focused on them. What do we not understand or what, what would we be better off knowing about the industry?
1: One thing, and this is a bit of a miss, people are, often think of charity as volunteer work. I remember when I was a musician, people say, well, you get to do what you love. You shouldn't get paid. And the reality is the nonprofit sectors a $480 billion sector annually. Hmm. These are hardworking professionals that are really seriously trying to make a difference in the world. And I think it's one of the misnomers is that they shouldn't get paid for that, they should. And I think we, are, we need to support our nonprofit leaders and their staff because it's not just the leaders, it's everybody. And so I think that's one thing I think people should really pay attention to that these are hardworking organizations. The second thing, which I think is really important as a donor, you're not giving money, you're investing in something, you're investing in change. And as any investment, you want to follow that change. So stick with it. Stick with the organizations you support. Ask them how you can help in different ways. Don't just give money away. Invest in social change.
0: Well, I think that is a wonderful answer. And Michael, I've really enjoyed our time. I get to ask uh, all of our guests two rapid fire questions. So question number one is this. If you could describe your leadership style in just one word, what would that word be? Collaborative. And the final rapid fire question is this, what is the best piece of advice that you have ever received?
1: Never fight somebody who's trying to help you do your job.
0: That is a wonderful spot to close us out. Thank you so much for
1: joining us today. Where can our listeners find out more about you and about your organization? You can find me on LinkedIn at Michael Thatcher. You can find Charity Navigator at charitynavigator.org and follow your heart, use your head and make a difference. Thank you so much,
0: Michael. Thanks for all the great insight. And thanks to all of our wonderful listeners for joining us as always. If you enjoyed today's show, we would love a rating and review in your podcast app of choice. And we truly appreciate it when you share our show with your network. You can find me on social media at Matthew Confer. You can find our show on Instagram at Ability Sims, and you can find our organization at Ability.com. I want to thank Michael again for joining us on this episode. And of course, I want to thank all of you for joining us on the Learn to Lead podcast. This podcast is produced by Ability, a leading provider of award-winning leadership development. You can find us at www.Ability.com or by searching for Ability Leadership Development. Make sure to also check out our 12-week fully virtual mini-MBA, The Invited MBA, a nights and weekends program that features experiential learning, mentorship, case studies, and networking. Find more information at www.invitednba.com. Finally, be sure to subscribe to our podcast so that you get our next episode. We want to thank you all for joining us on the Learn to Lead podcast.